Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 90, Resilience. In this episode, I'm talking all about carrying on when everything else has fallen apart. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back. If you are listening to this in real time, it is the weekend after Thanksgiving and 2020 is wrapping up. I'm kind of in disbelief. I'm sure as many of you are both anxiously wanting this period of time to end and also questioning where the year went. It just really was such a different year and so many people had their plans thrown into the sky. It's not all bad. Things happen out of adversity that can be really terrible and can be really amazing. Sometimes when you are pressured or challenged, your true desires or your true self really are able to come through. But that's not what this episode is. This is not a wrap up of 2020. And oh my gosh, I can't wait till 2021 because is it really going to be different? I'm not sure. But this is talking about something that's been on my heart a lot, and that is resilience. And this is not my story. I'm not going to sit here and tell you how resilient I am and how amazing I am and how many things I've overcome. We all have things we have overcome. But some of the things I want to share with you are the people who allow me into their lives and who pick up amidst some of the hardest challenges that life can face you. And I say this all the time. We plan and we worry and we prepare, yet the worst things in our lives are the things that we never saw coming, you could never prepare for. They happen in an instant and everything is different. And I'll share some personal things because you know me and that's how we roll. But I really want to start by talking about patients and people who've impacted my life and especially the patients. I think there is this idea that infertility is this really privileged group of people. I think that was really shown in the Lena Dunham essay, which I'm not going to spend all my time talking about, but she definitely painted a picture of the infertility community that made me sick to my stomach. Privileged, white, upper-class women just looking for vanity embryos. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Lena Dunham published an essay in Harper's Bazaar talking about her infertility, her fertility treatments, and her ultimate decision to have her reproductive organs removed due to severe endometriosis. She is obviously hurting, and I do hope that she heals from this emotional process. But all of that aside, she did not just come up with this idea about the infertility community on her own, right? Reproduction and reproductive rights have for long been considered a luxury, 
That's why insurance companies don't always cover it. That's why we don't have great paid time off for leave after we have children. And this is why there's so much stigma around infertility. It blows my mind. We as a community, let's just say in the United States, we as a community want people to be parents and we put some value on women on their ability to have children. That's a societal belief. We can argue about it, but it's true. However, we do not support these women in any way. We don't provide funding for infertility. We don't talk about it. There's a huge stigma and we hugely don't support working mothers. But what gets me the most is that her representation, this elitist group just wanting to add to their family for looks, Oh my gosh, that pissed me off because have you not been in the trenches? And when you look at the composite of the people that let me into their lives every single day, one, I'm, I'm floored by it. There are truly times in my life that I think about that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sliding Doors. I don't even really remember the movie except the general premise. And if you know me, that's not surprising. For some reason, I never remember what movies I've seen unless it's The Sound of Music or Big or Home Alone. Other than that, I really can't tell you the plot of many movies with any accuracy, but that's a side note. The point is that at any given moment, you make a decision that is right or wrong for you and you have an entirely different life because of it. I really feel like I lived this in medicine. I'm that girl who wanted to be a doctor since I can remember. My grandfather was a fabulous psychiatrist who was very well known for trying to spread his message. And this was pre-social media. So this was books and TV interviews and speaking engagements. But he truly believed that relationships were the key to happiness. But I always wanted to be like him. Not a psychiatrist per se, but a person who could influence the course of somebody's life in a positive way by my knowledge. And he did this and he loved it. And that sparked this huge interest in science and medicine for me. So I always wanted to be a doctor. And those of you who've been here from the beginning know that I actually matched into emergency medicine. I loved clinical medicine. I loved procedures and using my hands and thinking on my feet. And I loved interacting with people. And I had really poor mentorship, but essentially I was told that if I wanted to be a mom and a doctor, I needed to pick a field that would not consume me and would allow me to have a better lifestyle. That would be shift work. So go work a few shifts a month, have time with your kids. That's what you need to do if you want to be a working mom. And I didn't have any other example. I did not have any female physician mentors at that time. All the physicians who I knew who had supported me were male. And so I didn't know how to balance that. And I believed it. And I started my emergency medicine residency and very, very quickly realized it was not for me. There's nothing wrong with that field. It is a freaking amazing field and a very hard job. But it did not fulfill me. And it was not that relationship with people that I needed. So I always will say this was a selfish decision. But I said, This isn't going to work for me. I'm not going to last in medicine. I will leave eventually because I'm not getting what I need out of this field. And so I made the decision to finish out my ER year and reapply and then match into OBGYN. 
And most people said I was crazy. Even Jason was, are you sure? Because I went from a three-year emergency medicine residency and then I'd be done. And I completed a year of it. I could do two more years, be done with medical training, paying off debt, living my life, making attending money, moving back to Austin. We actually said, hey, we're going to Dallas for three years. Then we'll be back in Austin. No big deal. And instead, I did a year of emergency medicine, four years of OBGYN all in Dallas, and then three years of reproductive endocrinology and infertility in North Carolina. And then we moved back to Austin. So I took what could have been three years of training and done and made it into eight. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit. And there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. However, that singular decision, which was made at a very hard time for me because everybody was saying this is interim blues, residency is hard, don't make this choice, it's wrong, you'll regret it. I said, no, this is the right choice for me and I'm going to do it and the cards are going to fall how they fall. And I'm a fertility doctor because of that decision. There are so many great REIs all over the country. My partner is one of them who fall into this field because they're exposed to it and they love it. And they know they are in OBGYN only to go to REI. And I had a story of exploration. I did my OBGYN. I fell in love with REI along the way. It truly is a combination of that 
psychiatry relationship like my grandfather had, meaning I get to know the patients. I sit across from them for an hour. I hear their story. I try to really put myself in those shoes. And I get to use all my nerdy science information about endocrine and hormones and infertility and try to help change their life and influence the path of what is going to be the rest of their life with my knowledge. I mean, that's incredible. I am so, so lucky to do this job. It is a heartbreaking job so much of the time. Every fertility doctor will tell you this. We don't have 100% success. We don't. It does not exist. If it did, it would probably mean that it would be fine that naturopaths or advanced practitioners or mid-levels could do this job, that it wouldn't take all of those years of training, all of OBGYN and all of that fellowship. But the reality is it's very complex and it's very high stakes. And to make all of that worse, it's expensive for most people. So this job comes with a huge emotional, physical, financial burden for every couple. And the vast majority of patients who walk into my office or really sit across from me on a virtual computer now come to me in a deficit. Those things are already low. They're low on time, emotional reserve, sometimes physical stuff, sometimes money. Depends on what they're coming to me. But very few people, there are exceptions, very few people are, hey, we're at the fertility doctor. The exceptions are same-sex couples who need our assistance for reproduction, which is always very nice because they're super excited. They have not been beat down by the process or by people who are interested in preserving their fertility, freezing eggs or embryos for the future. That's at a different level than the couple who has struggled from loss in some form or fashion and comes into my office. I almost titled this video Pregnancy After Loss, which is a topic I really want to do soon. But that is achieving the goal after you've been broken. And what I really wanted to talk about was resilience. Finding the grace and the courage to keep going in the middle of the hard stuff. And OBGYN in general, not just infertility, but OBGYN is some of the best and the worst stuff that there is. I have seen babies die in front of my eyes. I have delivered dead babies. I have performed terminations of highly desired kids because the mother was not going to survive without that procedure. I have seen a mom die during childbirth. Those things really hit you hard because nobody expects any of those disastrous outcomes. And the thing that really gets me is that these patients, I'm not often their first fertility doctor, which is fine. I don't care if I'm the first, I'd rather be the last. That said, they've been treated like their fertility was a commodity by other physicians. And that gets under my skin. They are told what they can or can't do. They are told how they need to feel. And even though I am a huge believer in not sugarcoating things and telling you how it is, I think there is a level of making sure that people understand their own autonomy in the process and their own ability to make decisions about their reproduction and their family. The big categories of loss that really test a person when it comes to the infertility world, one is going to be pregnancy and infant loss. Ooh, 
The other is cancer and the loss of normalcy and the continued damage that such a disease can do. So let's just break them down really quickly because I think it's important for all of us to realize when we see fertility trending and we see fertility doctors talking about education and empowerment and destigmatizing the process. And there's a lot of money in the industry right now for good and for bad. Overall, I think it's for good. If we're promoting and talking about fertility, that's nothing but helping advance the message. But this infertility community is more than just a group of people looking at wanting something. These are people who are resilient and they are fighting for something. So let's talk a moment about resiliency after loss. So I've lost pregnancies before. My pregnancy losses hurt and they were very hard for me. But personally, it was easier for me because they were early. I have a few patients who have had not infertility. They actually came to me for genetic testing. And I talk about them often to patients because one of the things that we do as fertility doctors is we are supposed to do preconception testing. And I'm a huge believer of this. And if you go to your OBGYN for a preconception before you get pregnant visit, they would do all this testing. But a lot of people don't. They just start trying to get pregnant and then they go to their OB for their first new OB appointment, at which time it's too late. Well, it's not too late to do some of this testing, but if you find something abnormal, it may be too late to change the outcome. And so one of the things we do at this infertility visit is preconception counseling. So we're going to check your blood type. We're going to see if you're immune to rubella or varicella, if you need a booster vaccine. We're going to talk about infectious diseases. We're going to talk about nutrition and lifestyle, but we're also going to do genetic carrier screening. And a ton of patients will tell me they don't want it. It costs money. My insurance may not cover it. It's too expensive. It's a couple hundred dollars. But there's always pushback. Well, there's no genetic diseases in my family, so I don't need this test. And I get it. Nobody wants tests that are unnecessary. And I promise you, I and most fertility doctors hate running unnecessary tests. That said, and this is how I phrase it to patients, you're right. You probably don't need the testing, but I'm trying to save you from a disastrous outcome because what this testing is checking for are called autosomal recessive diseases. And autosomal recessive diseases are such that both parents must be a carrier for the disease. And carriers do not have symptoms. So carrier status can be passed down through families for years and years and years. And until two carriers come together, they will have a baby born that could be impacted with the disease. Even then, it follows a normal genetic inheritance pattern, 25% with the disease, 25% do not have it at all, 50% are carriers. So you may even have a normal child, and that doesn't mean that you don't carry this disease. But some of the diseases are life-threatening. Some of the diseases result in neonatal death no matter what. There's no treatment for them. And two of the patients that I have had, I've had many patients be carrier couples. The most common diseases are spinal muscular atrophy and cystic fibrosis. Both have certain treatments. Both have different life expectancies. They are more common, so we've heard of them. The diseases you've never heard of are because children do not survive. There's a reason you don't hear about them. It's not because they're less bad. And when these couples come to me, 
after not having infertility, but getting pregnant sometimes very quickly, and then have a child that is diagnosed with a disease when it either dies or stops growing or an abnormality is found on ultrasound, their entire world is shattered and they have to make decisions. Sometimes they decide to terminate a pregnancy. Sometimes they are carrying the pregnancy. Sometimes it's not diagnosed till after birth. Regardless, they're put in a terrible position of having a child die one way or another. And had they known that information beforehand, they could have considered doing IVF with genetic testing to screen out that disease. And that's what we do. And that's the point is if we do this preconception testing and you're both carriers, we would have genetic counseling. Of course, I cannot understate the importance of genetic counselors. But then we would talk about doing IVF, so in vitro fertilization, and sampling the embryo's placenta to do testing for that genetic disease to find out which are the carrier embryos. So we save you and your family the heartbreak of having a child that dies. To make matters worse, this is a more complicated delivery also. So you have higher risks of having uterine abnormalities afterward. I mean, this is terrible, right? You're going to lose a child because it's not going to survive. Maybe you make the decision to have a second trimester termination procedure because it was diagnosed at your anatomy scan and you have talked to people and that suits you the best. There's a risk with that procedure or after the fact that your uterus is going to be scarred. Same thing happens with a stillbirth or with retained placentas or other factors. Giving birth is not a benign process. And so I have a handful of couples who have had a traumatic loss of life and then have residual defects of their uterus. Their uterus has been scarred. We're working on uterine surgeries. And now we have these two issues. And I always try to say this really clearly. One, we need to get some embryos that are normal. Part one. Part two, we'll go and look at the uterus. But sometimes these women will have to have a gestational carrier. Somebody else or surrogate carry the child for them because their uterus has been damaged in this process. This does not mean that all termination procedures or DNCs or birth result in a scarred uterus. No, of course they do not. But I'm showing the level of hurt that some people, I was going to say are sitting in my waiting room, but nobody sits in my waiting room now. But some people are walking into the clinic carrying a burden that is so great. And what I have found is that these people come in with such grace and forgiveness. They are so understanding of the ups and downs of the process that I honestly don't feel like I deserve that level of understanding sometimes. But what gets me the most, as I said, is when these women are told, you have to get donor eggs, you have to have a carrier, you have to adopt, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. In such a callous way, acting like this desire to have a child or to grow their family is just a desire and not an internal need to be fulfilled and to have the life you want to have. And very often, we do have to look at these alternative paths to parenthood, and that's okay also, but it's about understanding the priorities of a person and their goals and bringing them into the decision and helping them understand it. And the other big group is a loss of reproductive organs from cancer. 
I guess from any disease, but specifically from cancer, because when you have cancer, all patients will tell me thought number one is survival. And you know, I'm big on fertility preservation and empowering people, and that's great, but sometimes that's not an option. And sometimes you lose your uterus and you have a decrease in the number of eggs you're going to have, your ovarian reserve. Sometimes you've lost your ovaries and you're never going to have a genetic child. Sometimes you've gone into menopause after your cancer treatment, so you'll never have a genetic child. Sometimes you can't carry because your disease process is too hormonally sensitive. All these things are extra burdens onto cancer that make people feel like they're living a world of less than or that their body has failed them. I'm no cancer expert. I'm a fertility expert. And so when I interact with women in these shoes, I always say, you've been through the worst. You've been through bad days. We're here to work on that next chapter. And maybe it's not going to be the way we thought it'd be when we were younger. And that's okay too. And I try to be very pragmatic about expectations, options, plans, and choices so that as a team, we can make a choice together. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. But when I see these people in my office who've had this amount of loss, whether it's loss of life, loss of a pregnancy or a child, loss of normalcy, loss of their reproductive organs, loss of a spouse. There's all type of loss that can come at us. And I see them being resilient, fighting for this future that they believe in, this path that they feel like they are supposed to walk one way or another to add a child to their life. And we break it down and I ask them, I usually say things like, this really sucks. Like what you've been through sucks. And I'm so inspired by you. But what keeps you going? How do you have resilience? And what I hear very often when I ask this question is that resilience is about understanding your goal and understanding where you are and that they are very different places. And just focusing and putting one foot in front of the other to get there in the right direction. Little habits, little changes, little things checking off things on the to-do list, asking others for help, getting yourself up in the morning and brushing your teeth, going for a run, the little things that start to add up to your life. And to me, these are the small habits, the small decisions that we make that are life-changing. And maybe they're not, boom, I'm going to change my entire career life-changing, 
but they are pushing the tide in the direction you want to go. And the other thing that I hear is that resilience is about forgiveness. Okay, who are you forgiving? Is it yourself? Is it somebody else? Is it God? Is it your partner? Is it the world, the universe, society, your mom? I don't know. But it is about forgiveness, acceptance, and moving forward. I like to think on the big picture is that we only have this one life. And there's times where it's going to be hard for anybody. And the levels of hard are varying. And what may be hard for one person may be easy for somebody else. So there's no comparison or judgment here. Personally, I'm very introverted. So when things get really tough for me, I start to shut down. I don't reach out for help. I don't communicate well. I start to internalize more. And what has helped me is counseling. Other things help too, like journaling is really big for me. Getting my thoughts onto paper, processing in my brain, how I feel, and really coming up with actionable steps about how I can get from where I am to where I want to be. That's how I overcome hard things. One of the first hardest things I went through is that when I was in medical school, I'd always wanted to be a doctor. As we've already discussed in this podcast, my cousin, he and I were a month apart in age. His name was Lee and he was in a very bad house fire. He was home alone and it was my first year of medical school. I remember it was my birthday and we were studying with some friends and I got a phone call that there'd been a fire and that he was being flown to Galveston where I was in school and it was pouring down rain and I remember leaving and gosh I was such a med student of that era I had on like workout shorts and oversized t-shirt and flip-flops and I was running in the rain and got soaking wet and it was nighttime And I'd never been to the burn unit because I was a first-year medical student. I only knew where lecture halls were. But I ran and I found it running through the hospital looking like a hot mess. I I remember approaching the floor. I mean, I had my badge so I could get past the hospital doors and have to wait to be buzzed in. So I buzzed myself in once I got there and I was trying to find the family room where I knew my aunt and uncle would be. And I heard him screaming in the debridement room. If you don't know, if you're not in medicine, Debridement is where they use this high pressure water and they try to slough off all that dead skin because it's just going to get infected underneath it. And in order to get burns to heal, you've got to get that dead skin off. And I remember walking in and seeing my aunt and uncle in the waiting room and the looks on their faces. We all could hear him. And just that shared, I can't believe this is where we are right now. And that was in January. And I, I would go up there every day and he was in the burn ICU. I would study in the waiting room and wait to be able to go back and see him and support my family. Some of my family members lived with me for a while and it really shaped my first year of medical school. He got much better and was standing and starting to rehab and went to go have his umpteenth surgery. I don't really remember which one it was. It was a surgery to fix some contractures on his fingers so his hands would be able to work better. And he went into heart failure and cardiac arrest on the table and was resuscitated. I got a call from my cousin who was older than me. And she said, Nat, can you get up there and be with, you know, my parents? I had just finished a neuro exam. And so in classic me fashion, I'd stayed up all night studying for it. So I was sleeping. But yes, I ran back up there. And I found my aunt who was getting coffee. We walked up the stairs. And I remember vividly. 
my cousin being wheeled past us and debated and the ashen color of his skin. And he was beautiful. He had this beautiful skin, dark, naturally dark tan skin and this dark thick hair. And he was gray. And those of you in medicine, you, you've seen that look. You, you know what that means. And I just remember we opened up this door to the stairway. He came rolling past us and she dropped her coffees and they went all over the floor. And she collapsed and I picked her up and went into the family room. And I learned a few things that day. The surgeon had his residents come in and tell us what had happened. And they were so vague. They weren't being clear. They were acting very optimistic, which I, I saw him. I knew that was not the case. So I insisted that he come in there. And then he was much more transparent about what happened and what the prognosis would be based on how long he was down and what his brain function was looking like. And long story short, we decided to withdraw care. And if you've ever withdrawn care on a family member, it is on anybody. Actually, if you've ever withdrawn care on anybody, it's terrible. You would expect that. Great. They just pass quickly, but it's not really the case. And it's a very emotionally complex process, but he ended up dying. And I got really depressed and I didn't really know if I wanted to be a doctor anymore. I felt really betrayed by his physicians because I felt like we were all told how good he was doing and we were talking about rehab and we weren't even really prepared that this outcome could have come out of this small surgery. He'd been through really big surgeries. He had 80% of his body with third degree burns. So if you're in medicine, you know the survival rate from that is not high. We were prepared that we were going to lose him until we did. And at that point, we were thinking that this was getting better. So I felt so betrayed by being led to be able to be optimistic, then not prepared for the surgery, then how we were told of his passing and the unpredictability of it all. I didn't know if I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't do great in my classes for a while. I didn't want to be on the other side of that conversation. I didn't want to watch people go through that level of hurt. I just didn't want to. I also remember being very upset that his surgeon didn't come to the funeral, which now I understand it. But at the time, I just felt so let down. And here I am in the medical world training to do this job. Counseling helped me immensely because it allowed me to understand how my feelings were and how I could still be in medicine and still be a doctor, despite this thing that I honestly felt like I wasn't sure if I could do it anymore. And I just kept one foot going forward at a time. I made small decisions. I started taking better care of myself. I was able to leave the island and come to Austin, which was really good for my healing. I did my third and fourth year of medical school here. And I was able to take that experience and put it in my soul and allow me to be better because of it. And I approach people differently. And I think... I really learned that there's no proper way to process grief and that depression is a very strong emotion and you can be burnt out from things and it can make you feel like you don't have any choices and not feeling like you have choices or that you have a role in the decisions that are happening around you is a very, very isolating thing. I had to learn how to open up to others more during that time because I didn't want to and I had to lean on them and ask for help and I had to really, really think about what I wanted and the big picture of this life? Was I going to let this tragic event define me? Or was I going to allow it to shape me into somebody who was closer to who I wanted to be? 
and it was more in line with who I felt in my heart and how I wanted to live my life and what I wanted to do. I think that's the real thing about resilience is no matter if you're trying to come from something that is relatively small or really traumatic, you have to be able to prioritize you. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do. You must forgive yourself for whatever happens in the moments of grief. And you have to allow yourself the opportunity to change the course that you're on. Use that sliding door. Make the one decision, big or small, that's going to change the path. Because you didn't ask to be in that position. The things that we have to be resilient from, we did not expect to happen. We did not see them coming. There was no way to prepare. So now you have to deal with it on the back end. And that's okay. Allow yourself to change. Allow yourself to be different. That is all okay. And more than anything, there's no shame in getting help from other people, from professionals like I did, and from the world around us. You do not have to live up to anybody's expectation. It is okay if your journey is and looks different than everybody else's around you. And true resilience is failing to allow the world to dictate who you are, meaning finding your own way after being in a place you never wanted to be and allowing that opportunity to make you better in the long run and to make decisions that put you on a path that you never anticipated being on, but that will lead you to the best version of your life. I hate the saying that all things happen for a reason, and I'm not going to say that here because I have a very hard time in medicine reconciling that fact, why some of these very, very tragic things happen to people who are very good, or why people have to go through such struggle and heartbreak when other people do not. To me, I do not understand that aspect of things. And I'm not going to have all the answers there. But what I do know is that when you allow yourself to be prioritized and to overcome this adversity, whatever it is that you're facing, you are going to be better on the other side of it. Different, but overall, somehow, you will say it is better. And do not give up that hope if you are in the trenches of it right this moment. Okay. The month of December, I have some really big embryo transfers coming up in patients who have been through loss and who I care about immensely. So I need everybody listening to send some baby dust their way and just good thoughts and vibes that we can help these families get to the other side of this journey. Thanks so much for all your love and support. I would love it if you would go and subscribe to the YouTube channel. I know I keep saying it, but I'm putting a lot of effort and energy there and it would mean the world to me. You can also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at Natalie Crawford MD. And please share this with anybody who you think may benefit. Thanks, friends. Bye.